Yama, Mali Nagaya. From Mamma Mia, I'm Camilla Roy and Dungari woman Mali Silva, and you're listening to Titters for Titters, the podcast where we share stories from excellent Indigenous women. Tida means sister, and in this podcast, you'll get to hear the stories of a handful of our deadliest Indigenous sisters who are out there changing the world one day at a time. When Dr. June Oscar was 18, she worked as a typist for the Aboriginal Legal Services in Western Australia. It was in that small office in Derby, typing up a document about a case where an Aboriginal stockman was treated terribly by white station workers, that she decided that she was going to change the way white Australia treated her people. And from that moment, she's done just that. Decision-making about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples must include us. We encourage this committee to be bold and determined in setting in motion this pathway forward so we can ensure that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have the rightful place we deserve in this nation. Dr June is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner for the Australian Human Rights Commission. She's the first Aboriginal woman to hold that role. And the story of how she got there from a cattle station in Fitzroy Crossing, Western Australia, is inspiring. And she joins me to tell it. Welcome, Dr June. I'm a Bunaba woman. And two years ago nearly, I moved to Sydney to take up this job as the first Aboriginal woman social justice commissioner. And um, what a very uh, honourable and privileged position to be in. And I hope that I can send the message to every young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman in this country that they can see themselves in this role. Wow, that gives me goosebumps straight away. (laughs) How are you finding living in Sydney to begin with? Well, I came to Sydney with a very open mind and it was a lovely and exciting move and a challenge and so that was important so because I needed to protect myself from getting homesick and missing family and country and all the sights and sounds and smells of home and I thought you have to look at this opportunity and think you can make of it what you will, what you can and so I came with a very open mind to Settling into city life and exploring all of the adventures of um, living in Australia's biggest city, but coming to it from one of the remote communities of northern Western Australia. Yeah, so it would be great to start from the beginning, I guess, because obviously there's quite a journey that comes before getting to the position that you're in now. So what was the beginning of your life like? What was it like growing up in Fitzroy Crossing and how did it shape the path that you've taken now? Well, absolutely shaped the person that I've become and um, all of those people involved in my early years, my memories of living on the mission in Fitzroy Crossing with my mother and then returning to our traditional lands out on Leopold Down Station where my grandmother and other members of my family lived and worked as domestic workers and station hands, horsemen, cattlemen and being raised 
by my mother and grandmother out on Bunaba country, speaking Bunaba as my first language, exploring the country, learning about life and all its adventures and excitements and exploring that as a child was something incredible and I can still hear and see all of those days down at the spring playing, climbing trees, in my memory. That's very clear, very real. And that gave me the strong foundations to, to shape the adult that I've become. So having time to play and explore and to feel safe and protected and be loved by the community, by my own family and our extended family was just, I think, a wonderful childhood. And I can relive all of those memories when I think about country. And, of course, I can return to country and visit all of those places that holds all of the memories for me. So growing up in the early 60s, at a time when the ravages of alcohol hadn't hit, at a time when we saw working men and women absolutely committed to raising their families but committed to their craft, their skill on the stations. You know, it was a very solid in terms of security for family and that was all to come crashing down and after equal wages was introduced and many, many families were told to move off the cattle properties as workers and ended up in fringe camps around these missions. And that certainly happened in the Fitzroy Valley where, you know, hundreds of families came to live in almost refugee-like living conditions. Communal toilets, taps, showers, washing areas, very little housing no real plan for the numbers of people that would be affected. And as a child growing up in that environment, what impresses me most about that time, and there were many things, but here was several hundreds, if not a thousand Aboriginal people, men, women, children, old people, living in a confined area And these were five different tribes, different language groups living in this space. And it was absolutely critical that we were able to live in the most harmonious way in this confined area after having lived and worked out on our traditional lands for four centuries. Our old people had their children there and raised their children there. And so this was a different time. What impressed me most was the authority of the cultural leaders in those language groups, how they would meet and they would discuss how it is that we would live together in the best way we could under the circumstances and the power and pressure of government that was having now this impact that we were seeing in our lives. And learning to live with other people, not just my own family and not just my own tribe, it was 
all these other groups of kids and their families and their old people and they spoke different languages to myself but we all got along we all lived and shared food stories many many things after returning to um, my traditional country bonobo country out on leopold downs we were then returned back to school and the first waves of students coming in had to live in the dormitory so we that's where I ended up and at seven years of age going to live in this strange house and with all these other girls and there were no mothers in the house but we had older sisters and cousins who would look after us and help us settle in and I went to school in Fitzroy Crossing and later would return to the cattle station to my mother, to my family on holidays and later on being sent to Perth to go to school and that was a huge culture shock and I went to high school there and up to year 11 and got too homesick and came back to Fitzroy Crossing then went away to Port Hedland to Pundalmara Vocational Education Training Centre with a number of people I had known from Fitzroy Crossing but surrounding areas and it was an adult education training centre so we as young adults were encouraged to go away, learn a trade, learn about independent living as young people. We had great supports with the... um, the educators there and the mentors there. And it was when I started working, uh, my first job, I started working in South Hedland as a telephonist and a typist and a you know, switchboard operator. Wanted a career and continued on for 12 months and then returned to the Kimberley and worked for the Aboriginal Legal Service WA Aboriginal Legal Service. So that's a really interesting, and you do a lot of moving, obviously, all the way through your childhood, even though you've got all these other things that you're obviously probably considering and probably more worried about family than anything else. Was there anything when you were younger where you were like, when I grow up, I want to be this? Or what inspired you to pursue everything that you've done now? Well, I think the critical time for me was as a... 17, 18-year-old, I think, worked at the Aboriginal Legal Services in Derby as a relief person because a lady that worked there went on leave for a short time. So I was able to step in, having just come back from Port Hedland and trained in office duties. So that was a perfect timing and perfect fit for me. And it was there as a typist, typing up the affidavits for the solicitor to take to court and to represent Indigenous people, Aboriginal people in different cases. And it was a case that caught my attention when there was a group of Aboriginal stockmen that had been discriminated against and treated terribly by white station workers in the Fitzroy Valley. It was when I realised that as Aboriginal people, we don't have to put up with this. We can take action. So it opened my eyes to the real way that Aboriginal people could access justice, that we could secure legal support, that we could take action, that we could 
have someone speak on our behalf or we could speak and represent ourselves in the courts. So it was then that I became very aware of rights. But as a young person, again, still growing in my understanding of that. But it spoke to me about our people having rights and having the ability to exercise our rights. I didn't know anything about human rights then, but I just knew we shouldn't tolerate this. We can do something about it. And here was the Aboriginal Legal Services providing that support. And so as a young person, that led me down the path of holding firm to that belief that we have a right to our voice and we can pursue justice. And so I've continued to work, whether it was for government, the hospital or with the welfare. It was around ensuring people understood and that they were able to exercise their rights. And being a English as a second language speaker, understanding and communications are really important to me. And I ensured in all of the working roles that I took on, people understood the information that was being presented to them and that our people could understand it and respond in an informed way because I had seen too many bad examples of people abusing the right to inform us, the responsibility of informing us in a language of our choice and in a language that we use. So there were very little efforts at time to ensure that we understood. I saw many terrible situations where people were in agreement but they weren't quite understanding what was being said. So I thought that was something that I could help to address, having had the benefit of a Western education through the mission and learning English, but also maintaining my own language to be able to fill that space. And, and I, I became involved with the Kimberley Languages Resource Centre after, you know, we had linguists work with people of my language group and we started to write my language for the very first time in 1985. So all of our languages, as you know, in Australia, languages kept and, and taught through the oral tradition heritage. So our languages were never written down, but they were part of the landscape, the sky, the country. And the stories were kept and told in our songs and our ceremonies, our dances and our artwork and the way we created our presence and our existence in the landscape. So I thought it was important as someone who had the benefit of having learnt English and who could write, read and write my own language. So I worked with other members of my family and our old people and we started to write our language. So my commitment to ensuring that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have a right to maintain and teach our languages is very important. And our languages do not exist anywhere else in the world but here. They come from this country and they speak to our existence and our connectedness to this country.
So it's important that we do all that we can to maintain and keep our languages alive. And I know that many languages have been so severely impacted upon by the coming of white people to our country and that many of our mobs have been able to look to each other and look to neighbouring languages to help revive some of our languages lost at the coming of colonisation. So my involvement in supporting languages in the Kimberley was to work with the Kimberley Languages Resource Centre and I chaired the organisation for some 15 years and worked with the language speakers of the 30 different languages at that time in the Kimberley to look at what their priorities were about language maintenance, preservation and intergenerational knowledge transmission about language. And I helped to establish the Kimberley Interpreting Services as well so our people could have the support of interpreters when they appeared in court or they wanted to understand what was happening to them if they were part of the education system or the health system or any of these spaces where people were interacting in. We needed to impress upon everyone that people are speaking other languages here in the Kimberley as well as um, English or Creole or Aboriginal English. So I'm passionate about language and I've been involved in a number of activities in my own language group around singing and ceremony and language teaching. And whilst I'm in Sydney, I've taken a little break from that, but I remain committed and as passionate about language. And that is why I always make a point of speaking my language as we travel around the country to remind people that ours, mine and everyone else's from every Aboriginal group around the country our languages belong to this place, to Australia. Yeah. I think it's something that a lot of non-Indigenous Australia doesn't really understand the weight of when it comes to language. They don't realise that it's so inherent to not only our identity, but also it's a means of healing in a lot of ways, which I think is kind of what you're touching on and obviously with your passion here. I think, yeah, I've heard stories of the ways that language revitalisation has seen kids turn up to school more in some communities and things like that. So it's pretty powerful. And speaking of language, the most recent project that you've been working on in the role you're in at the moment with the Australian Human Rights Commission, in English it's Women's Voices in Bonabar. Yeah, would you be able to say the name okay. of the project in Bonabar? Because yeah. I would butcher it, I reckon. Uh, <laughs> it's We Yani You Tangani. We is woman. We Yani is lots of women. We Yani You, meaning four lots of women, and Tangani, meaning voices or word. So it's the voices of many women. Wow, that's beautiful. Would you be able to tell us a bit about that work that you've been doing in that project? Because it sounds amazing and you've yeah, been able sure. to talk to so <laughs> I many know, women. I just talking about language. Yeah. <laughs> stuck there. No, but um, that's, I mean, I think that's a beautiful segue into this because it's Well, all I think because also this year is it's the, the UN year. Is, you know, year of indigenous people's languages. So we Yudangani, it's been the focus of my term and it is 
a project that um, is funded by Prime Minister and Cabinet from approaches to the government to support us in gauging with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women across Australia for the second time. The first time was 33 years ago, which is around the time that DAA were the Aboriginal Affairs Administration and they commissioned the Aboriginal Women's Task Force to undertake consultations with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women on issues impacting them. So as a national collective of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, We Yani Udangani, Women's Voices Project, is the second time that we've been able to speak as a collective. And I thought that was very, very important in taking up this role as the first Aboriginal woman as the Social Justice Commissioner to elevate the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls on the issues that are impacting them on a daily basis that they can speak about from their lived realities around their successes, their achievements, what it is that provides and enables our women and girls to stay focused and to stay resilient and committed. And so women and girls were able to share so many things that gave them the confidence and the courage to pursue what it is that they wanted to pursue. One of the key and common things was family. The other one was to do with culture, language, family, country, all of the things, tangible and intangible, that are sources of strength for us. And they were able to provide insights into some of their families, some of their relationships, with particular members of the family that gave them encouragement and were sources of strength for them. And the other question that we asked them, well, what was it that undermined their right to succeed, their right to pursue things that were important? What was it that caused them concern and fear and reluctance or hesitation? And so, again, women and girls shared many, many things. And some of those issues could be shared with leaders of their communities. When we were talking to young women, they were able to convey their messages directly to some of their senior people, which was great. And there and then decided that they would change the way that they would interact with each other and made each other accessible to each other. So that was great. We saw that. We saw women seeing each other for the first time in a very long time, even though they lived in the same town. And so we saw women excited with reconnecting and committing to staying in touch and supporting each other in their communities. So we saw some immediate results around some of the issues that created challenges and loneliness sometimes for women and girls and isolation. But we saw them develop immediately in a supportive, responsive way to each other to try and correct that and change that. There were bigger changes, bigger issues, and one of the big issues was racism, systemic and institutional racism, the surveillance of Aboriginal young people who gathered in public places 
people being followed in shops, people not being able to access services, taxi services, government-funded service provision, and the quality of support and care was non-existent in some of these instances. The treatment of youth, the abuse of youth and women in some, some towns by authorities. So there were some real historical, really entrenched prejudices. In some towns, in some spaces, there was this common story that was appearing from these consultations. It wasn't just here and there. So that's very, very concerning when these concerns are held by women and girls on the West Coast communities in the Kimberley or in the Pilbara or down in the big city metropolitan areas. There are similar concerns that we heard in the other states and territory. So we will be addressing those. We also ask women about what it is that they wanted to see changed and what would that change look like. Women gave some fantastic thoughts around the detail of where change could take place and what could that look like. But women were saying they want to be engaged with, they want to co-design processes that will be beneficial to them in their communities, wherever they are. And women said that in the cities, communities, so in rural and urban settings and remote and regional settings, women said they want to be able to drive these changes. So we need to ensure that government hears what women have said and that we provide some very clear guidelines around how we respond, how we enable governments to be able to respond in a respective way, in a very respectful way with women and engage with these young women and to create these spaces for women to also share with each other the successes that we're having. And that was another thing. We, we looked at you know, what it is that women are achieving across the country. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are achieving so much in so many different areas and that's to be celebrated. So all of these engagements across the country, we visited 50 communities, we held over 105 meetings across the country, we met with 2,500 women and girls. We didn't get to every single town or community but we were able to meet with women and girls in all of their diversity across the country. So my report to the federal parliament later this year will carry the voices of all of those women and girls from all of those communities to the federal parliament and it'll be the very first time the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women will be tabled in the Social Justice Commissioner's report to the Federal Parliament. Wow, that's a landmark kind of moment, hey? So here's to hoping that the response is dedicated and it's really about listening to respond with some really committed action to help make those changes and to provide more spaces for our women to help lead, as they've suggested. I was actually reading an article that you wrote for The Guardian about 
the documentary that just came out about Adam Goods, The Final Quarter. And I think just going back to what you were talking about before, that one of the big common challenges that our women and I would imagine our men are facing the same thing across the country is racism. And in that article you said racism is everywhere. And reading that, I know that there will be so many people, and I know this because I've had people say this to me, so many non-Indigenous people who kind of scoff at a remark like that, who kind of go, oh, that's not true, which is just a blatant lie for us and our reality. And I wonder, how do we get this message that this is still something that really hinders our experience or puts a barrier up for so many of our people across the country? How do we tell, because it is kind of up to the other 97% of the population who are the majority of the time the perpetrators of this racism, how do we get through to them? How do we show them that this is something they still need to work on? Well, I think... One of the other things that was launched last Friday as well was a conversation guide in how we talk about racism. How do we create awareness around racism and racist behaviours and how we counter racism. That comes from the Racism It Stops With Me campaign at the Australian Human Rights Commission. So that's able to be downloaded and used to have these constructive conversations around how do we know when someone is being racist or someone is feeling they're being racially vilified or targeted. So I'd encourage people to um, go on to the Australian Human Rights Commission website and download the guide and to encourage them to have these conversations in their workplaces and to be able to then develop as organisations zero tolerance around racism. But if people don't know what that looks like, well then all the more reason to go and get hold of the guide to help you see through fresh eyes if you can't see it already. Mm. For Aboriginal people, and Torres Strait Islander people, people of colour, we know we have felt the ugly hand of racism for so many years in this country and it still is there. And every generation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have experienced it and if not once, too many times. It's still there. We have to expose it when it happens We have to name it when it happens and we have to continue to keep pushing to have organisations or individuals or companies exposed so that we can address it. And for those who perhaps make comments around they don't believe racism exists, you know, are they people of colour? Are they people of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent that are saying this? I don't think so. I don't know what it's like to live a life where I'm not being challenged based on the colour of my skin. I don't know what that feels like. And I don't think any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person knows what that feels like because we know what it feels like to be judged, to be labelled, to be treated differently based on the colour of our skin. It is something that everyone should be reflecting on and I hope that we get to a point where in the rooms where we aren't present, where there aren't people of colour in the room to call out racism when it happens, it's a white person in the room who can call out their peers who do. Yep. I think that's a big step that we need to see happen. Because that's right. 
if people are saying, well, what can we do, non-Aboriginal people are saying, what can we do to help? Well, call it out. You call it out. Even if we're there or not there, you call it out. And you take a stand and say this is racist and that you don't tolerate it and challenge your peers and help them to stop living in denial. Now, you have received so many amazing accolades for all the incredible work that you've done. You have an Order of Australia. And last year, you uh, won NAIDOC Person of the Year, yeah. uh, which is pretty One amazing. Year already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost going to hand the baton over. Yeah. So I just wanted to share with you a story of kind of where I was when I was – I watched your acceptance speech on the, like, Facebook live stream, right? And this was because I was stuck in an airport in South America. My flight had been delayed and I was sleeping in an airport in Bolivia. I was there for 24 hours. I'd been away for five, nearly six weeks and I was very homesick and because it was NAIDOC at home, I just wanted to be at home with mob and I wanted to be part of the NAIDOC celebration. So I was watching the live stream and I was quite deliriously tired because I'd been sleeping in an airport and I just cried like a baby all the way through your incredible speech because at that time, because I was homesick and everything and I just wanted to be with my family and I felt a bit alone and to feel this uplifting, incredible moment where you spoke to all the Aboriginal women in the room and across the country, it was really quite phenomenal. And I ended up, I did my honours study last year and I quoted that speech and your amazing speech oh, wow. in my honours because for me, it was my research was about the representation of Aboriginal women on screen. And I talked a lot about Because of Her We Can and how that inspired me as a whole, but how you just perfectly contextualise it for me. And I'll just quote you now. Uh, This is the one I used in my honours. We must be heard to unleash all that we are and claim our rightful place. We must be unshakable. We cannot bend for this world. Let this world bend for us. True. Yeah. And it still reigns true. And I wonder, being awarded that, what did that mean to you? And as a whole, how important was last year? How important was Because of Her We Can? Oh, wow. To be celebrating with all the sisters and aunties and mothers and daughters and grannies last year for the whole year because of Her We Can. And we did, I think. I think women continued the celebrations well beyond NAIDOC and the National Awards Night. Look, I think whoever it was, and I think it's the NAIDOC committee that came up with that theme, did the nation and every single one of us proud and acknowledged every one of us across the country, all of our families. And I certainly saw families having their own little gatherings in their own communities, their own towns, celebrating their mothers and grandmothers and sisters and daughters and granddaughters. So it had that real ripple effect right throughout. And it continues today because everywhere I go, I'm hearing men and women talk about their own achievements and paying acknowledgement to the women in their family um, and still speaking and using because of her, I can or we can or I did, you know, because of um, the women in their families. And I don't think that's a theme we're going to forget about, you know, (laughs) too soon. It'll be around for 
for a long time. Receiving the award, I was surprised. I was shocked. I go about my work because I love the work I do and I do it with absolute commitment and it comes from a place of genuine care and my passion about the things that speak to who we are as the first peoples of this country is what I live every day in that belief and our you know mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and the women that came before that lived on this continent and whose digging sticks turned the soil of this country to keep our people here and ensured that after 65,000 years we're still here and we will be here for another 65,000 years or more. We have to believe that. We have to live that truth because that is our truth. That is our collective truth. And we make our contributions in our time in all the many and varied ways because of our gifts, our skills, our talents. We all have a sense of purpose. We all have a role to play and there's room for all of us. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your story and just an incredible amount to think about also for giving us an insight into what I know is the truth because of of my bias and who I am but what some other people might not realise is how incredible our women are and all the incredible things that they're doing across the country. So how long is your term as a Social Justice Commissioner? The term is for five years. years. So you're in year two? Year two. Mm -hmm. And to you, the Women's Voices Project is an incredible achievement already to be completing at this point. But what do you hope by the end of it? What feels like success to you at the end of your, your term? I am very committed to ensuring that firstly the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are heard, that we are responded to in such a way where we are at the table co-designing strategies moving forward and nothing happens without us. If it's about us, you can't do it without us. That we assert our right to agency, our right to be making decisions and that we're supported. And so I hope through this report we will give some very helpful and clear guidelines around how this could be achieved and so that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women across the country can also use this report as a tool to call for the changes that need to happen in their communities and the relationships they have with the people of influence, that through their sharing of their stories and their aspirations, they're able to see the change that their voices have influenced. So I'm hoping that we're able to shift many things that brings about a better quality of life for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls and their families and their communities 
across Australia and that we continue to find ways of supporting and investing in the leadership of women because through the investment of women's leadership, it is circular. Women take care of everyone in the circle and that governments and others come to see that and appreciate that and support that. I um, hope that I can see in my term a voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that is assisting in the decision-making and guiding in the decision-making of legislation, of policy affecting the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country that helps to inform government in getting it right. Uh, I want to be able to see the commitment from all governments to working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in a genuine, meaningful, partnership way that changes things for the better for our people. And, I, and we can, we can, and we, we need to have the courageous leadership, not just in government, but in our organisations, in our communities, in our families, and we need to take care of each other to do that. And we, we give each other hope, and we must carry hope. So I guess my final question goes back to what you said when you introduced yourself which was as the Social Justice Commissioner, you hope that every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman, young woman and girl, can see themselves in the position that you're in. And I wonder if you have any message for those women who might be listening as they pursue whatever it is, it's their dream in the future. What's something you would leave them with to act as inspiration? Good question. I want to make it clear to... Listeners, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an academic. I come from training in community through the lived experiences of community people who are living through all sorts of challenges but are succeeding because they're absolutely focused and committed and speak from a place of truth. That's the space that I've come from And as a community worker, listening and helping others to articulate their message, to be able to take up the responsibility in a leadership role, to make hard decisions, to be able to bring people with you. You don't have to be a lawyer or an academic to become the next female social justice commissioner. So you in community keep doing what you're doing for the betterment of all our people, your families, your community and and for all of us and you never know where that'll take you. Thank you for listening to Titters for Titters. If you like this show, please share it with someone you know and leave us a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you want to see more from Titters for Titters, follow us on Instagram by searching Titters for Titters. Titters for Titters is produced by Eliza Ratliff and Amelia Navasquez. I'm Mali Silva. See you next time. <laughs>